Welcome to the 171st episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 13 years to the day since Chris Tremlett bowled Michael Beer. Now, you might wonder why this is an interesting event. It wrapped up England's first Ashes victory in Australia for 24 years. Welcome to the podcast that wonders how long we're going to have to wait for the next one. First English Ashes victory in Australia for 24 years. It had been is quite that right? Way. Yeah. Wow. In 2011, there'd been... Yeah. And it was Chris Tremlett to Michael Beer. That's what's rather wonderful about it. Michael Beer being someone, I must confess, I have absolutely... I mean, Chris Tremlett know very well, but Michael Beer? Well, he was part of that this moment when total that post-war blame, blame blank, search for a spinner. Yeah, that's that's why I think these two figures will be uh, forever in Ash's history. But yeah, neither of them might be the first names that are. Uh, oh that yes, I've just googled him and 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 recognised that um, slightly oafish smile. Anyway, here we are, uh, Reverse Threat Radio episode one hundred and seventy-one, starting off the new year, and we have both some news and a request. Yes, so we're delighted and a little bit proud to be nominated for Best Cricket Podcast at the Sports Podcast Awards. Uh, We're in some lovely company with some great podcasts, including some sort of friends of the show with uh, the Indian podcast Edges and Sledges and Golden Age of Cricket, so in esteemed company. However, you know, there's no room for friendship in the brutal world of podcast awards. <laughs> it's cutthroat. So it's cutthroat. we are in the cutthroat world. So we are asking you, dear listener, for your votes today. It's very easy. You go to the Sports Podcast Award website, uh, click on the cricket section. It will take you all of a minute to to cast your vote. And yes, we are very grateful uh, in advance. And the voting ends at the end of January. So please do get your votes in. And please ask your friends, your grandmothers, your pets, and anyone who you know to cast a vote for Reverse Threat Radio as well. Um, I was telling a friend of mine who I occasionally play cricket with about this the other day, and he didn't actually know that um, we uh, that I that I co-hosted a podcast. And he said, "What's it called?" And I said, "Reverse Threat Radio." And he fell about laughing. And I said, "What's so funny?" And he said, "You've never played a bloody reverse sweep in your life." And do you know what? He's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, he's absolutely right. Um, we have got an episode today that is going to. If you weren't convinced to vote for us, I'm sure we're going to convince you today because we're going to be talking about the rain in England. We're going to be talking about the cricket at the SCG. We're going to be going back to the moment when um, cricket added a fourth stump and we're going to be reviewing Avita Burned Down Our Pavilion, a book about cricket in Latin America. Um, Andy, it's January, it's London, it's wet, it's miserable. Well it's actually stopped raining and it's now freezing but it has been raining (laughs) relentlessly and I'm sure I can speak for many of our British listeners that they spent the last few weeks you know at least a bit soggy uh, you know, we've been close to sending for the Ark. But spare a thought for Worcester, because their new road ground is yet again underwater. And we mm. see this so often that I think we're all a bit blasé about it. And we take for granted that within a few months, in some cases within a few weeks, cricket will be played there. You know, really good quality county championship cricket. And I was reflecting on these remarkable people. I, I had a bit of a go down the sort of you know the twitter rabbit hole and found myself on the accounts of various um ground staff at worcester and i thought what a what an extraordinary job this is knowing that every year you will work incredibly hard 
on a pitch that will then be soaked and then have to sort of salvage the whole thing again it's it's kind of part of the um part of the lot of the of the 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 groundskeeper isn't it that when something goes wrong you're absolutely in the spotlight and you're pilloried for it but when everything goes right or when a pitch is ready to play in on in april having been underwater in january nobody really notices you're there it's just assumed to be a to be a thing it's kind of a curious role that you play isn't it it's true success is in being invisible isn't it and um it's one thing as i said looking at worcester where they have got you know an established ground staff who are presumably very used to this um mad state of affairs um but i did then see a few pictures on twitter of grounds that are you know village clubs i think one of them was stratford cricket club i came across that again you know it's kind of you could be canoeing over their square at this moment um and you think, well, they obviously do not have the resources. Um, so, you know, thinking of all those um, indomitable volunteers who will be trying to get those greens into uh, into space before the start of the new season. I With the super blotters. I always <laughs> love those, yes, you know, those things made of like blotting paper that they roll out across the pitches. I've always had a bit of a thing for those. Yes, I think when it gets to flood water, you presumably need a, a super, super a bit blotter. More than, but, yeah, you um, do a bit more than a bit. You need enough. a hose, fundamentally. I, I did have one other thought seeing all this, the, the photos of Worcester, which is that we often lament the diminished profile of county cricket in this country. But I do think there's something interesting about the fact that when the newspapers and the TV try to show a typically, typically British scene during the flooding, they always seem to go to Worcester. So... There is something clearly about uh, county cricket underwater that still strikes a chord with with many. Um, Now, far from being underwater, you've been living it up at the SCG. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, there was a big debate before this uh, Sydney test because Sydney is the most rain-affected test ground in Australia because it rains quite often in the kind of post-Christmas time in in Sydney and there's been a a debate recently about whether because it leads to so many draws in Sydney the test should be moved from being New Year's to some other times and the SCG obviously don't want it to be um, uh, moved because New Year's is a good marketing hook but then they you know wonder cricket Australia thinking maybe they would move it anyway this game uh, turned out to be, until a bit of a damp squib at the end, turned out to be a brilliant game and only a, a couple of hours lost to rain. And I was very lucky to be there on um, on day one. It was one of those wonderfully seesawing days of, of test cricket. Pakistan lost both um, both openers within the first couple of overs. Um, their innings, uh, the, basically the day span, the Pakistan innings, their innings um, ended with a, a brilliant 10th wicket stand. Um, there was one moment that, that really made me kind of chuckle out loud, actually, um, which was after Wiswan and Salman had had a century stand that really rebuilt the Pakistan um, innings. Rizwan had gone to a kind of bouncy trap that Cummings had set. Um, it was this field where you had a deep backward square, a deep square, um, a short leg. It was all like telegraphing that this was going to be a barrage of bouncers, and indeed a barrage of bouncers came. Um, Rizwan um, played one down to Stark, called out deep backward square. Um, in comes Sajid Khan. A um, couple of bouncers comes down, which they he... Um, and, and Salman kind of um, guide down into the leg side for, for singles and you think they just need to weather this storm and kind of get through this and sort of stabilise um, a bit. And then um, another bouncer comes down from, from Cummings. It's an absolute snorter kind of straight at his neck. Um, it's his third ball of the innings or maybe second ball of the innings at this point. 
And he has the presence of mind to play this beautifully deft uppercut over the slips down to the vacant um, third man region for four runs. And it was just one of these moments of kind of sheer audacity and kind of almost wit on the batsman's part to get out of this trap by playing it by playing it by playing it that way. Um, then the next ball, he tries to do exactly the same thing, uh, but. Um, they've put uh, Steve Smith down at deep third and he very, very nearly gets caught by by, by Smith um, down there. So it was just this wonderful little kind of um, passage of play of this kind of tussle of tussle of wits. But as I say, I think a real sense of humour almost from Sajid Khan to play, that, to play that shot in that situation when everyone else would just have been thinking, how do I get off strike? How do I, you know, keep these, keep these bounces out? It's one of the glorious things, isn't it, when you get these sort of cat and mouse situations, batsman mm. outwitting captain. And I always think it's obviously one of the many, many things that could often separate uh, the pros from the mere mortals, that yeah, total awareness of where the field is. Um, what was it like at the SCG? Because there has been laments, maybe mostly from outside rather than mm. in Australia, about how those well, from our British perspective, I guess winter series in Australia have just got a bit boring because, yeah. to some extent, the, the yeah. credit of Pat Cummings and Co—they just steamroller whoever comes over. They do. Australia what was the atmosphere are, like? Australia are a seriously good side, and this series had a real feeling of inevitability after Perth, where Pakistan got hammered, and there were, I think, on day two in Perth, there were like. 2,000 people in, 3,000 people in. It was tiny, horribly tiny. And you kind of thought this is going to be a... I, I wasn't even going to go to... At that point, I wasn't even thinking about booking tickets to go to the SCG. Then the MCG test came along, and I think this kind of young Pakistan side has really won everyone over, and they've got real flair and skill and bravado, and they also just seem like a bunch of really nice guys, which I think actually goes a long way. Um, and so by the time we got to the SCG, the ground basically on day one pretty much felt full. Um, and I mean, it was David Warner's final test, which helped. Um, the um, ground felt full. Everyone was kind of paying attention to the cricket and there was actually a really lovely atmosphere of cricket watching so I was pleasantly surprised because like you I had some doubts about about how that was going to go but there was a really um nice sense of of a yeah of a, of a kind of proper cricket ground that the cricket game that everyone was paying attention to unfolding I'm assuming that you shed a tear on David Warner's departure or did you to keep you know in truly to pay credit to him did you swing a punch at a random person in the bar or how did you how did you how did you bid him farewell no comment your honor from the archives and in this episode toby's going to take us back to the mid 90s when cricket added a stump so if you were a new zealander reading the paper over breakfast on the 4th of february 1996 you'd have seen a full-page advert with the headline, Cricket is dead, long live cricket. And at the bottom of this advert was an invitation asking people to come down to Cornwall Park in Auckland the next day and witness, quotes, the biggest thing to happen to cricket in decades. Now, this was the announcement of the birth of Cricket Max, a new format that was the brainchild of the late Martin Crow. Um, like so many innovations in cricket in the second half of the 20th and indeed the 21st century, it was born from a collaboration with TV. So the then boss of Sky TV in New Zealand was an American who knew nothing about cricket. He met um, Crow by chance and asked him glibly whether there was ever a chance that cricket could be played in a way that took three hours rather than 30. 
And Martin Crow went away and got thinking about this and came up with Cricket Max. Now, Cricket Max is a much longer story than a single edition of from the archive. Um, and there are a number of innovations that the game uh, saw interaction, including teams having two innings of 10 overs each. So a kind of test structure of two innings, but limited to 10 overs. Um, but I'll focus on perhaps the two most innovative or you might think the most bizarre um, of these of these innovations. The first of them was probably the most striking visual change, was, which was that there were four stumps. So this was designed to counteract the fact that almost every other rule that was put into place was in favour of the batsman. And when you look at pictures of, of four stumps in action online, um, it does seem impossibly wide. I mean, when you just think of the width of three bales, it's it's a, a significant width for the batsman to to defend. Um, but before the bowler's eyes start start lighting up about this, there was a flip side, and that was that LBW was removed as a mode of dismissal. And part of the thinking behind this was that as a spectacle for TV flying bales from someone getting bowled is much much more interesting particularly to a casual audience that doesn't really know what they're seeing much much more interesting and explainable than lbw decisions this is a very niche question where do you think you take guard when you've got four stars <laughs> has your you has your youtube evidence i i wonder whether because can you does it still make sense to take a, a middle guard do you sort of plonk yourself between the well, I think I think that, I think the no LB makes a big difference, and I think course, effective, yeah. I think effectively what you take, you you think about yourself having an extra leg stump rather than an extra off stump, on the basis mm. that to a say right hand right arm over bowler, you're still not really going to get bowled around your mm. legs, unless someone's coming around the wicket to you where you may take on. The assume that your middle stump assume that you've added a leg stump rather than an off stump so I think that and certainly from what I've seen of the YouTube clips you don't have people exposing all of their stumps because again the LB rule encourages you to use your legs basically to cover the stumps I think so watching games yeah as you say there are some of the games on, on YouTube and watching these um, you see another kind of unexpected result which is that because batsmen are using their pads for defense it means that their bats can basically be more aggressive you don't have to think about how do you get your you know to a spinner how do you get your bat out in front of your pads so that you're you know negating lb that doesn't come into to um into the equation at all so as many, as long as you do cover as many of your stumps as possible with your pads then you can use your bat purely for um, attack and this is particularly a disadvantage um, against the spinners and it does lead to some sort of slightly weird stroke play as well which you can you can see in the in the YouTube um, videos um, this was the most distinctive innovation of cricket max but there was uh, there were a lot of reservations from players a lot of batsmen reading interviews with batsmen from the time they all just basically said if I'm playing if I'm batting against Richard Hadley in his prime um, I am not going to I'm just ridiculous to assume that I should have have four stumps here because LB isn't how I'm going to get out I'm going to be getting out getting out bold um, so after the first year they actually took away um, the fourth um, 
the fourth stump um, innovation in, in, in the game and took away that kind of particularly sort of striking difference that Cricket Max had. The other thing that they took away after the first year was um, the idea of being able to have specialist sets of batsmen, bowlers and fielders. So a little bit like American football, there was a system whereby you could actually have different combinations of players. You had a greater squad and you could have different combinations of players at different times during the game. I find this idea fascinating and I think it's one that cricket in various forms has come back to with all these concepts around a super sub and I think my understanding is I think the latest incarnation of the IPL does still have a a version of this. Um, I I think it would be bad for the game ultimately because so much of the skill is how do you pick a balanced 11 that does everything but it would also be totally fascinating. You know, the idea that you could effectively have a batting 11 that goes out there to sort of put as many runs on the board as it can and then you almost change that 11, which exactly, as you say, is, is how American football is played. You have, and it actually, American football is much madder even than that. You know, you have a team that goes out just to pump the ball. Mm. You have ultra specialism. So while I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want it for the game, I would quite enjoy it as a novelty seeing, you know, w- what would England, Australia look like if they could feel two different 11s? I think it'd be completely fascinating. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why they actually abandoned it for Cricket Max was that it, was, it wasn't just fielding two different 11s. It was a pretty complex system of... So of your batsmen, a certain number of them needed to field and vice versa. So it was kind of a, quite a difficult format, and we'll come back to this. But the rules were pretty difficult to understand from a spectator's perspective. It wasn't like quickly sub on the fielding side or you know bring on the bring out the the batting side. It was kind of there was a huge amount of nuance that went into the thinking about it, and possibly a, too much nuance that went into it. Um, the second innovation, um, second big innovation after the after the the four stumps was the structure of the oval. So we're now familiar, very familiar with the limited over circle within which you have a, have to have a certain number of fielders within certain power plays. Um, Cricket Max replaced this this circle with a kind of weirdly shaped. Basically, think of it as a, as a square, but the middles of the sides where mid wicket and cover are sort of pinched inwards for some reason um so uh, they had this this area which was marked out onto the pitch and it looks like a kind of mistake or as if they've been playing some weird form of baseball there the, the previous week um and this was the um their version of the circle within which the um certain players had to be during certain sort of super overs at the other end, at each end of the ground behind the bowler basically between long on and long off was a thing called the max zone and the max zone was a semicircle with one side of it on the on the boundary um fielders couldn't be inside that space when the ball was bowled it was about 30 30 meters across fielders couldn't be inside there when the ball was bowled if the batsman hit basically anything the batsman hit into or through that was double the runs so if you hit a six beyond it it was a 12 and suddenly you could score a 12 if you hit a four through it it was eight and if you hit into it and ran three that would be a six so everything was doubled that went that went through it if you got caught inside that zone you got six runs and you weren't out and you think that this was kind of a bit of a rule to to challenge the batsmen to get them to do something risky that they otherwise wouldn't do but martin crow when kind of reflecting on it after after the first tournament simply said it was about getting more runs on the ball because he saw it as the safest shot that you could possibly play or the safest part of the pitch that you oval that you could um, most safely 
you can most safely play to and so he wanted to encourage more of that yeah it seems to me exactly that that if you wanted to make what i think you're describing which would be much more fun some way of creating interesting challenges for the batters you could almost have a moving circle couldn't you i mean (laughs) making it incredibly complex but you could put it in a different place and give the fielding side Mm. and the batting side that challenge but what you're describing to me feels like if i'm playing if i'm sort of playing quite ugly aggressive cricket isn't that when I, where I'm going to be mowing to anyway? Do you, do you know what I mean? Well, that's I mean, it's not really. I suppose it's not a kind of cow corner mow. It's a bit. It's a bit straighter than that. But yes, true. Again, when you watch the games back, you do see a lot of just kind of lofted, straight, chipped, straight drives. And because you're taking court out of the equation, as long as you basically get it over the infield down there, you're going to get six runs, and you can't and you can't get out. So it does have. You're right. It does have some. Um, uh, yeah, it does have real potential from a, from a, from, a, from a batting point of view. Um, there's actually a wonderful um, video of uh, Sachin Tendulkar scoring a series of twelves playing in an India against New Zealand um, cricket max uh, game uh, in the last year of the the format's um, format's life. So it did become so. So cricket max lasted from 1996 to 2002. It became a kind of core part of the New Zealand domestic season. The tournament had over 30 games played. Um, fans turned out in big numbers. TV loved it mostly because. It attracted a big audience, but also people watched till the end. The two innings format meant that the majority of games, well, 40% of games, were only decided in the very last over. So people were compelled to watch towards the end of the TV broadcast. Um, there's, you know, a kind of incredible lineup of players who who, who played the game. Um, Brendan McCullum certainly was one of the most kind of recent players who who kind of grew up and kind of cut his teeth in a way way playing it um it it died because of a general player strike in in 2002 uh the next year 2003 was when 2020 was trialed in england and the rest is the rest is is history um i think there's an interesting comparison to make between cricket max and 2020 which is that 2020 um is a very different game from everything that went before it in cricket, but actually very many of the rules and a lot of how it looks is very similar to cricket. It's just a shorter format, basically, and it's dressed up in a certain way. Whereas Cricket Max, at least when it started out, had a significant amount of very different and quite complex new rules. And looking back, some of the players in those first games did wonder whether it failed because it wasn't taken seriously because it was so different and therefore looked a bit like a gimmick and also because the public couldn't couldn't understand it and in that sense perhaps cricket max was just too radical for its own good the review and for the 171st episode of reverse Rep radio we have been reading Evita Burned Down Our Pavilion, A Cricket Odyssey Through Latin America by Timothy Abraham and James Coyne. Um, it was published in 2021. Uh, James Coyne is the deputy editor of The Cricketer. Timothy Abraham is the freelance uh, is a freelance sports journalist. And the book tells the history of cricket in South America. Um, it's, it's part history and part travelogue um, describing a trip by um, Coyne and Abraham around the around the continent um and it's a very um playful title and a playful cover on this book is this is, is it is it a playful book 
It's playful in parts, but I think it's a slightly misleading title in that it uh, suggests japes, doesn't it? It suggests kind of amusing anecdotes and travel tales. And while the book absolutely does tell the story of Evita in the pavilion, which we will get to, this is an altogether more serious book than this. It tells the story of South American cricket with thoroughness, and it's testament to a staggering research effort, both in terms of where Coin and Abraham went and also clearly the archives they trawled through. And I think I can say with total confidence that this is filling a hole in the cricket canon. I don't think anyone has, a, has attempted this before. How much did you know about cricket in South America before you read this book, broadly speaking? I think I probably knew two things. I think I knew that Argentina had a team of sorts yep. Yep. that you know had sort of been you around see them pop and, up and in, stuff. Yep. And I think, and funnily enough, the other thing I knew, which the book actually then does refer to, is I had seen on Twitter the Brazilian women's cricket team pop up from time to time because mm. I think they have a very, and the book makes this point, they have a very active sort of promotion attempt on social media. So I think I knew that um, they had a very active and sort of successful team. So yes, I think my knowledge could be summarised by those two things. And so not, not much. In the, um, I can't remember whether it's the introduction to the book or at some point in the book, they talk about the fact that they did this, what would have been an amazing trip around South America, visiting lots of these places and talking to lots of people and playing cricket. But they but they say they really didn't want the book to be about them or their travels, so they tried to kind of bring that into the background. Do you feel like that was the right decision to do that? I think it depends on your reader, really. Um, I think... For a casual reader who has a interest in cricket, but not perhaps a deep, deep interest in cricket in South America, they will find bits of this book more than they bargained for. So, for example, we get really detailed timelines of when certain local teams in a region were founded. There was one moment which I noted because I, I thought this was an example of the thoroughness approach. There is a reference to the first meat extraction plant in South America. Um, in this case isn't you were wondering. Yeah. Right, and this isn't to, this isn't to criticise the book at all. I mean, you need historians who do their job properly and do it. I think it's just to say that I think there will be some readers for whom this is the right pitch, and there are some who, as you say, would be looking for a more travel-loggy book. And, and maybe the approach is that every reader can make something of this. It's actually quite a... We we talk on this podcast sometimes as sort of, you know, is it a dipper of a book? And I could see mm. you reading this in that way. You know, you could very easily pick up the chapter on Argentina or the chapter on Chile and just read that in itself. Well, and that. actually that's something that we haven't kind of called out explicitly, that the way the book is structured is that it has chapters on individual countries or kind of groups of countries as you go through. And I have to say that I did learn, um, while sometimes it can make for slightly heavy going, I did sometimes learn a lot about South American history or culture about particular countries through this book that I just didn't know. I also learned out learned about where the um, name of the of the plant poinsettia came from, which I was very grateful for it being one of my favorite one of my favorite plants. Um, one of the um, things that I really enjoyed was was meeting a kind of cast of, of characters and anecdotes because there is something I suppose one thing that came through to me was that, that the history of, of cricket in South America has been defined by certain individuals who have um, kind of put themselves out there to establish or kind of forward uh, put forward the game all the way from people like um, Andrew Murgatroyd who's a geography teacher in El Salvador who decided that he was going to take some school kids onto the cricket onto the football pitch and thereby is become responsible for creating the first generation of Salvadorian school cricketers 
all the way, and that's just a few years ago, all the way back to um, Claude um, Butlin in the in the 19th century, the kind of Mexican CB Fry, the kind of country's greatest ever all-round um, uh, uh, sportsman. Um, one of the things about Claude Butlin, which is interesting, is that one of the threads that he brings out is that cricket in South America often has really developed in isolation for the rest of the rest of the world. So it's often very difficult to have a sense of the quality of the game in certain places when these players often had a, haven't had a chance to play against um, players from other countries, other countries around the world. Um, one exception to that, of course, being in, in as you say, in, in Argentina, um, which is one place that has kind of had a bit more international success. Yeah, and, and just finishing on Butlin, I think is a great example of how Quinn and Abraham's work will have broader consequences in that as well as the research and as you say, bringing out his remarkable multi-sport career, the fact that they found where he was buried and, and sort of this sort mm. of story, it, it, it builds heritage in the region. Yeah, Argentina is, I think I'm right in saying, is the longest chapter of the book and I think it reflects the fact the authors were clearly very interested in it and it was probably the, the area I found most interesting because it's the great what if, I think, in the book. It's the one country where you think, maybe just maybe this is somewhere cricket could really you know we could be talking about England playing tests in Argentina um, the fact I didn't know the number of first class tours that took place here the other thing and you know I think we're both <laughs> we're both merrily owning up to our ignorance of the region here um, I'm, I'm dragging you in with me here that we'll go down I together. just had not appreciated the sheer role of the English in Argentina you know I just had mm. not I had not seen just the extent to which the economies were linked to the size of the expat community in there so that was real education we which then comes back do... to the Avita and the pavilion it, well exactly and I was going to say given the book's title we should do justice to this at least at least briefly which is to say that the evidence does seem to suggest that Avita or at least her supporters probably did burn down the pavilion of the Buenos Aires Cricket Club um, I enjoyed this line from Kenneth Bridger who's a, a cricket writer in Argentina in a fit of rage at the Englishman's obstinate refusal to give up the ground in favour of some wild welfare scheme of hers so that was the explanation for her decision um, so the evidence isn't conclusive but seems seems uh, seems pretty persuasive um, so obviously, following on from that, um, those thoughts about about Argentina, there's a question about uh, why cricket has been successful, more successful in some places than 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 in others. One of the things that um, I suppose, kind of, through reading a book that that delves in so much detail, you do realise time and time again this pattern of it being usually the British who bring sport to a particular place and they kind of play it amongst themselves in their own particular way as whether it's as, you know, kind of colonizers or um, something slightly friendlier than that. Um, but that the the sort of transplantation of the game into local communities in a very genuine way very rarely, very rarely happens. And I think it's this point that they didn't want it to happen in a lot of cases. And I think mm. um, Coyne and Abraham's analysis is is they, they have a very good section at the end, which is a sort of looking to the future of cricket in South America. And they make this point that again and again, cricket wasn't grown because there was no attempt to grow it. It was an elite sport kept to the elite. Well, there's um, this wonderful quotation, well, not wonderful, bloody awful quotation from the development officer for Cricket Peru, who talks about Lima, the Lima Cricket Club, never, never growing because members want to see it as, quotes, a sanctuary from the peasants. You know, this idea yeah. of it's our little slice of home in this in this foreign place. And so why would we want the foreignness to, you know, encroach on that? There is, though, one, one beautiful story I should mention. 
um, which is or one powerful story I should mention, which is about um, the Arawak people fleeing from Guyana in the 1980s into Venezuela to flee persecution. And the thing, one of the things that they take with them as part of a sort of defining part of their identity is playing cricket and they kind of continue to play play cricket to this day but that really stands out as a pretty rare example of of um indigenous people really taking cricket to their heart i think i think i think so and i, th- I think there's a part of me that would have loved given their knowledge of the region and their knowledge of the game i would have liked a bit to for the authors to feel they had the freedom to do a bit more of a what if about had there been a really conscious effort to grow South, cricket in South America in, say, the early 20th century, could could we have seen a different outcome? Or is there actually an extent to which the nature of the game, the nature of football's dominance would have made that difficult? Um, but I think you're right to say there are uplifting stories as well. And I think it's really telling that the authors, you could have finished this with a lament and you could have said, oh, you know, isn't it terrible the way the game didn't take off? And instead... Coin and Abraham celebrate all the cricket that has survived in the region, which turns out to be a lot, actually, all considered, and is still enjoyed. Um, and there's all that it's achieved. So these remarkable stories, as you've picked out one, and there's one about this um, refuge in Guatemala that has done all this remarkable work helping um, street kids, getting them out mm. the way of, sort of mm. drug gangs and stuff in the region. And it's perhaps an important r- reminder that while the ICC and others reasonably given their mandates focus on growth cricket can sometimes be small can sometimes be destined to remain small um yet can still matter in an, in an area like this um just to close i think we should tell the the story of pablo escobar's son <laughs> who um is uh his son from... probably a reverse radio first pablo escobar on the, i think i can say I think, that with relative confidence his his first son to a lady who was who was not not as a short-lived relationship i believe um and the son was sent away for his own protection being the kind of heir to pablo escobar and was sent to a um english school where he rather enjoyed playing cricket and he was he would he would keep wicket and he would put a match under one of the bales attached to a, a piece of thread and pull it off as the ball went past the stumps to pretend that the um, batsman had been had been bowled and thereby get devious wickets. So I suppose there was a, a deviousness that, that ran in that story, but I thought that was in that family, but I thought that was a rather a rather wonderful um, a rather wonderful story. Um, so that was Evita Burned Down Our Pavilion by Timothy Abraham and James Coyne. And that was the one hundred and seventy first episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Thanks for listening. Uh, Catch us over on Twitter. Leave a review on, uh, well, wherever you get your podcast. And uh, please do. We would be very grateful for your vote in the um, Sports Podcast Awards. (laughs) 